me being constructive. And I, and I actually have a few uh, notes yes. that I took while I was yes. listening, and I'll tell you about this later. But uh, your show last night, it was like the jokes were very good when you landed them, but it was you were very scatterbrained getting there. Like you were tripping all over yourself a little bit. Yeah. And it usually happened before a big punchline. So I was like, oh, here comes the punchline. Oh, get to it, damn it, get to it. Damn it. I'm, I'm like the pageant mum. I'm like the pageant mum. Yeah. Like, where the crowd, John Benet? Where the crowd? Basically, yeah, no, I was, um, I was, I, I've been in a scatterbrained uh, place, but that show helped me, like, move past a lot of shit. So, yay. Yay. Oh, hello. Hello, welcome to Mexican. We are Mexican and we simply can't. We we're just here. can't. This is a Mexican's breakfast special because we're recording in the morning, which is very yeah. strange for us. The good news is we may not get, or the bad news, depending on whether you're you or me, is <laughs> we may not get a visit from the tamale guy who, who yeah. I, you know, I've, I've, I've started to rely on him. He's, he's the one man I can rely on. The one a, constant in your life. It also happens to be Good Friday today. Yes. Now, if you're from a non-Catholic country or from a non Catholic family or background, Good Friday is the day when Jesus gets killed. He gets... He gets... He gets uh, well, he's been crucified for a while at this point, I He think. gets crucified and he dies, right? Because he's supposed to rise... Oh, this is us demonstrating how... No, no, I was raised Catholic. I can do this. Um, he... Last Supper is on Thursday. Okay. I believe. Last Supper is on Thursday. And then... Friday, he gets crucified. Thursday night is the kiss with Judas. Judas. Ooh. I think that's before, right? Because... Not he, after the Last he Supper. Is, no, because he is betrayed before the Last Supper. When he sits with the Last Supper, the betrayal has already happened. Oh, okay. Like, he's already betrayed him to the Romans. I think. we. May, I don't know. Guys, if you know the truth... Keep it to yourselves. We don't care. Like, we're not interested in the truth. No, it's fine. You can tell me the story. I love mythology. It's, uh, yes, it's good. <laughs> it's, it's good mythology. Yeah. It's, I like it. So, yeah, Jesus, as far as I have it, Jesus gets killed today. And uh, he dies because he got killed. And he rises on Sunday. Easter Sunday. And the, what did he... Was it... So he so he dies today. Tomorrow is the second day, and Sunday is the third, third day. day. Yes. Okay. I thought it was like a. Or this maybe this is just me. You told me three days from now, I'm yeah. gonna. It's gonna be like. Um, Surely you mean seventy-two hours, right? Like it's, it should be on Monday. Exactly. If you're counting, yeah. But yeah. Rem remember, they counted days weirdly back then. Exactly. You know? Like there was no year zero. Everyone was really confused. You exactly. know. It's like, what is it today? I don't know. I don't know. Like it's been like how long? How how long ago was he killed? Oh God, like three days ago. Like I remember, I was hanging out with you know Joshua and with Noah. And like, yeah, we had other Jewish there names. Was a, it was on, on Shabbat, right? He got killed on Shabbat and we were lighting the candles and they were like, oh shit, they crucified Jesus. And we went, yes, he was crucified. I'm not making light of the Christian story. No, 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 no. I had enough of it growing up. Like, Me too. I can Me tell too. it to you in Latin. This oh. is how much I had of it. No. Wow. Yes. Uh, me too. Me too. Uh, different, more Protestant kind of uh, Jesus, but... Yes. Anyway, uh, let me introduce to you my co-host. This is the philosophical opposite of Tickle Me Elmo. <laughs> he is Don't Touch Me, Luis Augusto. <laughs> Back the fuck off, Luis Augusto. <laughs> I've got mace. <laughs> Actually, oh my God. I, I want, you know, 
I constantly draw the line and erase the line on how famous I want to get. It's been redrawn right now. Okay. I want to get famous enough so I can have a doll made of me okay. that literally just says, why are you touching me? <laughs> Respect my space. You know? A little button on the stomach like <laughs> there has been no consent. It teaches kids boundaries. Like, <laughs> I don't have to kiss you, mum. Like, I'm just, it's not an obligation. Yeah. And let me, I'm sorry, that was fantastic. Let me introduce you, my co-host, Martin Leon, the man who became famous for a single joke, his love life. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, I should start, I should, like a friend of mine recently told me, we should start a dating advice podcast. I'm like, yeah, let's advise on what not to do. What not to do, yeah. Actually, I should, now, now I think about it, I should have written it differently. I would have been, the man who, who wrote the longest running gag in the history of stand-up, because it's been going on for years and years. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's my sex life. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's like a will they or won't they, except with you it's just won't. Oh, yeah. He won't. I mean... He'll pass on that. <laughs> like oh. a kidney stone. Let's introduce... By the way, I want you to tell your story about the hospital. The hospital? Oh, my God. Okay, so... He's fine, he's I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm fine. I was... Yeah, the reason we're recording off schedule, although we, we will be... I mean, um, not that you guys know. You're... Not that you guys know, because it, it should be um, online... Uh, on time. Promptly. Uh, but uh, this week I've, I've been having these terrible pains in my lower right back. And I thought it was just lower back pain. And then on Monday evening, I couldn't move from the pain. It was just insane. And I called, uh, I had a house call from a doctor that my insurance sent over. And they were like touching me and putting me. And I was like doing the whole, don't touch me. You know? <laughs> I've got mace. <laughs> I've got mace. <laughs> Respect my boundaries. That is not my belly button. So, uh, so anyway, I, I was being prodded along, and then they said, "It's probably your kidney. It's probably probably you have a kidney stone. You have to get these tests done, and then you have to go find a doctor, and the doctor has to interpret the results of the tests, and then we can, you know, you'll know what to do." And I went to get the test done on um, Tuesday morning, and then I called the insurance to see if I could get an appointment. And it turns out that Good Friday and Holy Thursday, or whatever it is, uh, they, no. you know, the doctors, they may be men of science, but boy, can they celebrate the high holidays. Everyone you needs know? a break, you know? Yeah. Like, everyone needs a reason to uh, ponder about the death of Jesus. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but, so my regular... Poolside. So my, my, regular doctor, my regular doctor, he was like, I'm sorry, I'm too busy escaping Egypt. I just can't... <laughs> He's Jewish, he's Jewish, so he's, I'm too busy escaping Egypt, so, yeah, and um, I, I just, I freaked out yesterday because it was, the pain was not going away, and I was like, if I've got a kidney stone, I really should go to the ER, like, this is the, one of the reasons, it's, it's such a weird thing, have you ever, like, made the choice, have you ever made the choice of going to the ER, because sometimes it's, there's no choice to be made, like, you have a broken foot or whatever, but, like, no, no, I've never... I've, I've, I've made it a couple of times and you always feel kind of ridiculous because it's like one, one moment you're sitting in your house like you're in pain, you're definitely in discomfort and then you go like, no, we're going to the ER and then my boyfriend is driving me to the ER and suddenly this thing is happening where I am going to the ER and I go in and they put me in a wheelchair and they put me in a gurney and they dress me in one of those... Rather flattering, you know, like... Uh, hospital gowns. It works for me. It works mm -hmm. for my body type, definitely. Um, oh. Definitely. Because the square thing, <laughs> brilliant. Um, the less curvy I look, the better. The better for me. And 
it's a whole thing that is happening and they're putting the IV and they're putting all this in. And then the doctors come in and it's like, yeah. And one doctor comes in, very, uh, very handsome, actually. He was a very handsome doctor. And he's like, yeah, it's probably a kidney. I'm going to leave you with another doctor. And then another doctor comes in and he goes, yeah, it's probably the kidney. It's like, I've heard that. Can we do <laughs> Can we do something about this? And then he starts giving me, because some of these doctors, they really like to show off. You know, it's like, so as you know, sir, exactly. there are three main causes for a kidney stone. And then he pauses and he goes... But I can only remember one presently. And I'm like, the fuck? You can only remember one? Like what? And I had been wondering when I was, when I was being driven to the ER, I was wondering if there are no doctors, like in their offices, then what kind of doctors are you going to have? At the ER. The stupid ones. The stupid doctors. That's who. And he was from the north. He was from Monterrey, actually. Of course. So I was lucky that I wasn't going in for an abortion. And he goes like, I only know one of them. And obviously, I just just freaked out. I didn't freak out in a bad way, but I was like, oh, don't worry. Let's bring out the textbooks. I can quiz you. You know, We can just Google it. I can just make you a better doctor if you don't remember the others. It's like, no, the most common one is this. And what are the other two, sir? I believe you're a doctor. And he was very young too. So maybe he was like an intern or something. Maybe, maybe. But he didn't know the answer and I wouldn't let it go. So every time he would get, like he would leave for something and then he'd come back. How are you doing? And I'd go, do you know them now? Do you know them now? And he kept forgetting to find them out. And there's like, do you know them? Yeah, because it's not his kidney that's in trouble. Exactly. And then after many tests, many expensive, expensive tests, obviously, if you're listening from, is listening in from the States, it's going to be You would slap him. Yeah, it's going to be nothing expensive. to you because the yeah. whole, the whole thing with, you know, with insurance discount, it's probably going to be about like $300, which yeah. it's a lot of money here, but obviously yeah, in the States is. is like, well, $300, I spend that at Starbucks. Yeah, that's a flu. Yeah, exactly. That's a flu. Um, so he comes back with all these tests and all these things and he says, it's not your kidney. I'm like, what? What do you mean it's not my kid? It's not your kidney. It's probably a muscle thing. You pulled a very, very specific muscle right along your kidney and it's hurting in the same way, but your urine tests are just fine. I love passing tests, so I was like very happy. <laughs> your urine test is fine. We did this. Um, it's not um, an MRI. It's the other one, the CT. We did, we, did, we did a CT of your kidneys and your urinary tract. Everything is tip top. Yay. You're fine. And I'm like, good. But doctor... If I had a kidney stone, what would be the three main causes? <laughs> and he was just laughing at this point. And I'm like, I'm just happy you're having a good day. I'm uh-huh. just happy I get to make you happy. Because guess what? I am a comedian. So I am doing my job. How about you? <laughs> Idiot. I'm never going to that guy again. He was rather nice though. The shade. The shade of it all. Don't mess with me when I'm in a gurney. I already feel helpless. I've got tubes coming up and down. It's just disgusting. Yeah, it was like, oh, I actually said, me a selfie from the hospital I like at the gurney and like the the hospital gown and everything and i was just like at first i was like are you the first zombie or something yeah it and then zero. and then i got really like worried like this is the last time <laughs> i was like are you okay no 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 the thing is i only sent the selfie when they told me i was fine and i was going to be free to go i was like okay now we can make light of this because i'm going to have to pay for my nose anyway so i may yeah, as well get a fucking selfie out of it just yeah, like yeah, yeah. grilling my doctor that was like my the only the only painkiller i got was bullying a professional <laughs> who'd spent 12 but years did in it work oh yes it did. yes there's nothing you know, here's a thing he's younger than me because now we're at that age my yes. thing, where, where the doctors are starting to be younger than us yes. 
Um, because it doesn't happen when you're 40. Now it happens when you're 30-something. Yeah. Late 20s, early 30s. You already have doctors who are younger than you. And you're like, and, and doctors have this air about them, like, I'm so much better than you. They I do. save lives. They do. So any chance I get to puncture their ego just a little bit, like, no, sir, you're not the American, sir. I've got <laughs> sir... No. Yeah, I need to speak to your manager, I need, sir. Yeah, can, yeah, can I please talk to whoever is in charge, sir? <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. So anyway, that was my hospital ordeal. But I made it to Martin's show last night, and it was wonderful. It was a good show. Yeah, it was a good it show. It was a good show. And you also had your first, uh, you did 50 minutes on stage. Oh, last Thursday. Okay. It was my first long-format stand-up. And you did amazing for what I was I, I did well. I did well. It, it's I need to talk to you about this later because it has so many nuances when you're doing a long thing. Like, because when you're doing 20, uh, here's the thing. This is the weird thing about okay. doing stand-up. Yeah? Let's, uh, let's go to a Mexican stereotype for five minutes. Then don't get me going, Matthew. And God then uh, come back to the topic at hand. To the topic at hand. So okay. Our so Mexican stereotype. The Mexican stereotype for the day is pan dulce. It. You could translate it as sweetbreads, but that means something else entirely. It's an organ, right? <laughs> yes. Sweetbreads are the um, the kidneys. And uh, oh, speaking of. Uh, what, what here in, in Mexico we call menudencias? Kidneys. Well, it's... Uh, there are three main causes while somebody <laughs> might eat a kidney, but I can only remember the first one. Uh, sweetbreads are like the organs that... Uh, it's like... Anyway. But uh, pastries is usually what we call them. And... Uh, I know in the U.S. you pride yourselves on your sugary treats, and I I I, I approve. Hey, you, you have, guys know how to do it. You, you guys know how to do it. Krispy Kreme is amazing, oh, God, yes. and uh, cakes. Oh my God, you guys do cake like nobody else. But when it comes to pan dulce, pan dulce pastries, these things you have with your coffee in the morning, I'm sorry, but you cannot beat a Mexican panadería. It, no, you cannot. Here's the thing. Uh, Mexico, as you know, was... Oh, here's a history lesson. Mexico was... History lessons. Uh, viceroyalty. Mexico was a viceroyalty of Spain for 300 years, from the early 1500s to the early 1800s, which means we got a lot of their culture. And if you've ever been to Spain, the one thing you learn when sitting down for dinner with Spanish people is... Boy, do they love their bread. Like, they literally sit down, and no matter what they're having, they have a huge baguette, and they're just breaking it off with their hands because they're basically barnyard animals. <laughs> and, you know, they, they knives? Not for us. Like, manners? Why? No. I, I, I will not take the manners. Thank you very much. You know, it's no. But uh, they love their breads. And that means that a lot of confectionery gets made in Spain based on the simple bread recipes. There's no, like, the shoe or the special kinds of doughs. No. It's... It, it it, it is a yeasted uh, it's, dough, but it is it isn't as delicate. No, it's very it's actually a very plain kind of dough. Yeah. Um, but it became famous for the very creative ways in which that dough could be made into treats. Yes. So you would have, like, for example, the, the most famous examples would be the concha, which is a fairly standard buttery bread, yes. and it has this lovely little sugary crust on top. It's a crust made out of sugar and butter, and it's a very dry. It's, it's dry. Thing. But the, 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 the bread under it is ideally moist because it's kind of a cakey dough too. It's made to be dipped into yes. coffee and hot chocolate and tea and whatever it is. You know, it's like it's water and water. <laughs> <laughs> acetone. You know, it's, just, no, it's um and 
if you go to a Mexican panaderia, a traditional Mexican panaderia, I know you, you guys have them in LA and along the border, uh, yes. but like, if you go to a Mexican panaderia and you ask for pan de dulce, it's, uh, they have such enormous varieties of these, and it's very traditional. A lot of Mexican families, for breakfast, as we are having now, for breakfast, they'll just go out to the go down to the panaderia. It's always made fresh, and you go down to the panaderia and you get yourself like an assortment of things. So yes. You grab a tray and you walk around the place, which is because that's something that always depresses me when I go to to uh, like uh, bakeries in the UK or in the US or whatever. Everything's behind glass, yes, and behind a counter. I know for like sanitary reasons or whatever, but like I like the risk. Does this concha have Ebola? Like I, I just like I, I like the risk. Has this been touched? Has it been touched by someone I hate? You don't grab them with your hands. We're not, we're not, we're not Spanish. No, we have no hands. But, uh, but uh, it, it, actually, in my grandmother's house, that was uh, and my they did that. Like the they, they brought uh, fresh, fresh baked bread from the bakery every morning. So one of the um one of the reasons you had to wake up early ish on vacation to go have breakfast with your grandparents was you wanted to have a pick of the better, better. breads. And everyone has their favorites as yes. well. Everyone what is your favorite? My favorite my favorite growing up was uh what in Monterrey called the Quequito. Uh, which uh, which we're going to be uploading these pictures into uh, into our Twitter, uh, yeah, Twitter, so Mexicans Pod, and Facebook Mexicans Pod. So you know, and if if you're interested, we can you know I don't know if anyone would be, but I'm sure we can find some recipes as well if you want if you guys want to try and make. make Kekito it. is basically a cupcake. It is it, it, what it is. In fact, Kekito it's called oh, here in Mexico City they're called mantecadas. In Monterrey they're called quequitos because it's cake ito. It's a small cake. Oh, it's, you guys are clever. Yeah, I know. We should, we should be going more Monterrey. On yeah, I know. Like um, so growing up, that was my favorite one. Uh, nowadays, I think my favorite nowadays is the concha. It's just concha? so amazing. It's Especially, too dry for me. I can have it with some chocolates, but yeah. by itself, I just can't have it. My favorite happens to be the one I'm having right now. This is actually Spanish in origin, but Mexicans have taken it to the next level because we make everything better. <laughs> and we do. Um, and this is kind of like a very... Um, it's like rolled up, very thin rolled up pastry. Yes. Um, like the kind you would have in a lasagna, maybe, but it's dried up and they, they, they just roll it up and roll it up into all these little tiny layers and then they crust it with sugar and sometimes they top it with a bit of chocolate mm-hmm. and it's called uh, an oreja, which is an ear. They're called in English, I think, palm ears. Palm, palm, yeah, palm cookies or palm something. Palm cookies are smaller, right? Yeah. And in the U.S. they aren't as loaded with sugar. And they're dry. In the U.S. they're very dry. They're yes. very crumbly. And here they're actually very buttery and very, very chewy. Very buttery, and they're yeah. just so good. So this happens to be my favorite. So yeah, you have to wake up early. Because there's always someone else who likes the one that you want. And families yes. don't... Like, Mexican families, they won't call to your door and say, what kind of bread would you like no. me to bring? They'll just go, they'll get what they find, they'll get what looks good. And then they'll come. And if you're stuck with the thing that nobody wanted, then you're stuck that's with the thing that you That's on you for being a lazy ass. Exactly. Um, although sometimes you might have, you know, a good cousin or something and be like, I'll share with you. I don't share. Uh, I hate those people who grab their knife. I was just, I'm just going to cut this man together in half. It's like, how could you? How you? dare you? It's yeah, so yeah, it's always it's always like an aunt or something who's on a diet. I'm just gonna have a little. Bit. I'm just gonna have half of this buttery pastry. It's like <laughs> half a fucking papaya. Like it's just you're not on a diet just because you're eating half of junk. You know, it's just, I, that's a very Mexican thing as well. It's I'm just gonna have half of this stick of butter. 
Yeah, exactly. That's basically what you're having. So yeah, yeah. pan de dulce, traditional Mexican breakfast. If there is anything resembling a Mexican panaderia near where you live, go treat yourself. It's amazing. And it's also very, I don't know how it is in the US, but here it's actually very cheap. It's very cheap to, yeah. to like, you can put together a breakfast for like eight people in your family and you'll spend probably like a hundred pesos. Yeah. It's, it's very, very cheap and it's very good. And starting your day, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's and amazing. I mean, just make sure like, Usually you can tell, like, when you pass in front of a panaderia, if you can smell the butter, that's a good one. If not, they're probably using shorting or something. And if you have people waiting for the things to come out of the oven, because there are oh, a lot yeah, of panaderias here, people know, like, oh, this is the good one. Like, here are they good. They do the good orejas, or they do the whatever. Yeah. And so they line up next to the door that leads to the ovens. They, they're not allowed in, but if they were, they would be literally lining up into the oven. <laughs> next to the oven. And they're just waiting for people to come out with these huge trays. And the moment they go out, it's like ravenously just grabbing into them. Because I'll say this, and I've, I've, I've had the good fortune of living in many, many countries, nobody does bread like Mexico. We're the best ones. Okay, fine. France, maybe. Like, oh, you know. I mean... Like, um, we have the one French listener. It's like, well, I am done with this. They they have insulted my bread. I will take my baguette. I I do think that uh, there's good desserts to be had everywhere you go. Uh, but if you are here in Mexico, please try the the, the pastries. Uh, they're great. Uh, and if you have tried them, because a lot of our listeners right now are from Mexico, uh, tell us what are what are your favorites. What is your favorite Mexican pan de dulce? Okay, so on to the main course. Today we're talking about the stand-up comedy scene in Mexico. Yes, That's I think you should begin because you. I began. You, you're the you're the um I'm the, the veteran. The veteran. The senpai. Okay, uh, so I started uh, somewhere between eight and nine years ago. I'm running it up to nine because I'm like that. Uh, but actually, the stand-up comedy scene in Mexico. I mean, there's been stand-up in Mexico for longer than that, like uh, at least for twelve years. I mean, Adriana the other day, a friend of mine called Adriana Chavez, who did stand-up before. Before I did, and who was basically the first lesbian to do stand up here in Mexico, uh, she showed me like a like a flyer from way ago, like like an archaeological. This artifact. is how we used to do it. Exactly, we print this by hand. The ink had to be sourced from the. We actually sacrificed a virgin and we turned their blood into ink. And this is how we made the flyers back then. Exactly. Um, so it's been around for a while. It started uh, gaining popularity like 10, 11 years ago because uh, Hector Suarez Gomez, who is a Mexican comedian, uh, started doing a show uh, called uh, El Pelón de los Tiempos de Cólera. Uh, which is a take on um, Gabriel Garcia Gar Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, title, uh, and he, what he did actually he did he went to the U.S. and saw uh, Cosby. At, uh, this was a while ago. <laughs> this, this is how old Martin is. <laughs> uh, and what he says is that he was really amazed that it was just a person on a stage with a microphone. Like he was used like even monologues here in Mexico, comic monologues. They use props and they use a set. They have a set and they usually have at least one other actor on scene, even in a, in a mute part for them to like interact with. And, and this was the first time like, uh, he saw someone just talking like to the, to the audience in a, like just, I'm going to make you laugh. 
Um, and so he kind of, I mean, he did, he wasn't the only one to bring it back. And of course, we've been watching stand up, uh, here in Mexico in cable television and everything for a while now. But he was the first one, I think, to make it popular alongside with Sofia Niño de Rivera. Both of them started like doing stand up. Both of them started getting on stage. Both of them started like moving things around. That's more or less where I come in because Hector Suarez Gomez wanted to sort of teach a new generation of comedians the ins and outs of stand-up comedy. So he had a stand-up comedy festival in which the prize was to be in a class with him and to be on shows with him. Uh, and I went to the stand-up comedy festival. I did not win, but I got sort of like a honor, honorary mention. Who won? Uh, Hector Garcia, Roberto Flores, Diego Sanasi, Gloria Rodriguez, Tomás Strasberg, and Goncuriel. All big names right now. All big names, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's where, that's where we started. And back then I remember, uh, that's why, like, when the young whippersnapper, well, well, the newer, back in my day. when the, when the newer comedians complain, like, oh my God, there's nowhere to do stand up. Like, no, of course there's a lot of places to do stand up right now. I mean, it's hard. When, when I started, uh, like, we literally, no place would book you. Like, like, what? They wouldn't even know. This? Like, what is this? Like, why would I have you on stage just as a microphone? What do you have to say to people? That's so important. Like, shut up. Um, so that's how we started. Um, and since then, I'm really glad to say that it's grown like a freaking wildfire. And now there's way more comedians in Mexico that my brain can, you know, remember. Uh, we had several explosions, not only here in Mexico, but, uh, internationally. Franco Scamilla came from the north of Mexico and dominated the scene. If you haven't seen Franco Scamilla's uh, special on Netflix... There's a new one. There's just, a new just one. Just out recently. I've heard it's good. Yeah, yeah, no, I haven't seen it. No, yeah. I haven't seen it either. And, uh, and that's where we are at right now. This was the trail that was blazed, blazed. by Martin Leon and his right. uh, generation of comics. Here's, here's a thing, I think, about, about comedy in Mexico in general. Um, I am, this is where I can actually get to use my drama major. Um, comedy in Mexico has a weird kind of history because, um, first of all, we, we did go through this very classical period during the uh, vice royalty, during the, the colonial times, even though it wasn't really a colony, but during the colonial times, uh, where you did get the Spanish uh, playwrights coming into Mexico and bringing their craft. Now, during that time, there was something called the Golden Century of Theatre in Spain, where some amazing theatre, all written in verse, but really good, uh, was was being written. And it was mostly, like, or, no mostly, but a lot of it was comedy. And it was this very fast-paced, very tightly written comedy, where it was puns all the time, and physical comedy, and innuendo, but it was actually quite like, there was a craftsmanship to it. And some of the really famous ones here in Mexico, for example, there was this guy called Juan Ruiz de Alarcón, who wrote these amazing comedies. They were very, very, very well written. And for a long time, comedy was actually considered rather highbrow. Oh, but wow. it, because it was still theatre. Because during that time, the theatre that people could actually see was theatre that was brought by the church. And it was only for the purposes of um, evangelization. Of course. Um, but even there, even that theatre started becoming a bit com comedic because they started using these 
allegories, you know, for yeah. the different characters. He had the devil and the sins and the virtues and so on. Yeah, and, and comedy for a long time, you like the basic formula was you have a flawed character. The flawed character goes through a whole bunch of things, which are funny because you know the flawed character is being you know shut down in several ways, and then he learns the error of his ways and comes back to the fold. Exactly, and then something happened in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, which was something called el teatro de revista. This was kind of equivalent to. Uh, French burlesque. This was a time uh, okay. where Mexico was very much influenced by the tastes of Europe, and uh, you, you got you, you had these burlesque shows where there was a bit of music and a bit of dancing, but there were these little sketches happening, and people really liked it. And it was the first time that the big theaters in the city they were actually letting in people who were not necessarily upper class. Okay. They were not lower class either. It was still there was we still a having, level of elite. We had like a, but it started to permeate the 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 the, the class system, um, and from that we had this idea. This is my this is my take on this. The idea that comedy was not meant to be realistic. It was meant to be an escape. So in a, in a society as Painfully class divided as the Mexican society, seeing this little play, which was very influenced by you know the Italian commedia dell'arte and so on, the poor guy who is actually quite clever, yeah, and he ends up stealing the money from the rich or taking the girl from the rich guy or whatever. It became the standard. You had the underdog, and the underdog, because of his intelligence, ended up being smarter, street smart usually yeah. than you know the snobs that were were surrounding him. And this went on for a couple of decades, and then you had like the big, um, the the big uh, advent of the Mexican comedy um, cinema, and you had, for example, the most famous Mexican uh, cinema comedian of all time, which was uh, Cantinflas, Mario Moreno Cantinflas, yeah. and his character was essentially a comedia del arte stock character. Now, this yeah. this guy was not just playing a type. This guy was a very Consolidated actor. He he'd been to uh, you know he he was classically trained, very well you know very versatile. But he was always typecast as the underdog who is too clever for his own good, and then he ends up you know making a blunder out of his cleverness, but then also fixing it at the end. And he keeps the girl, and he keeps the blah blah, and so on. And he was just placed as a stock character in many different situations. I love his movies personally. But if you see them, they're pretty much all the same. It's now now it's Cantinflas as a police officer. Yeah, now he's a thing, and he's a yeah. And the, the other thing with Cantinflas, uh, and this is something because, uh, as you say, with uh, comedy, even if other in other places, comedy still had a very uh, political vent, and like even in the mainstream uh, here in Mexico, comedy was an escape. Period. Yeah. Like his like Cantinflas movies. Uh, as much as you can extrapolate from them to talk about the era and everything, they themselves were not made as a critique of anything. There was only one that became famous because it was actually quite political. It happens to be my favorite by the president, which is called uh, Su Excelencia. Yeah. He play his excellency. He plays uh, a secretary, a bureaucrat. Which was this was a time where the the main party in Mexico was the PRI, and everyone had this reference of the the incompetent bureaucrat. And he was he starts as that and ends up being essentially a statesman. Yes. And it was a play on the political times and yes. you know the communists and the capitalists and the blocs and so on. 
And we should do an episode about that, so uh, next. But the thing is, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I diverge when yes. I talk about history. But here's the thing, my point is that for a very long time, it was very, I believe, it was very difficult for Mexicans to see comedy as a podium for discourse and a podium for ideas and for politics and for standing up for something as a stand-up comedy, as, as some purists will say, stand-up has to stand up for something. So it took us actually quite a long time. If you saw comedy in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was mostly sketch shows on TV and it was yeah. full of innuendo and it was very cantinflas or, or trying to be very cantinflas, but it was not, there was no authorship. You couldn't really see the person behind the character. You never got to see, for example, what Eugenio Derbez, who was a, this really famous comedian of the 90s, still very famous, but um, he, what he believed. You never got to see what, what, what are your beliefs. What is but the your... thing is, you do. And what uh, Eugenio Derbez believes is that he's just an entertainer. In fact, a lot of uh, Mexican comedians, uh, one of the reasons why they keep their, their comedy as uh, apolitical, and not that something can have can be completely apolitical, but why they try to not comment on that is because of that. It's because for them, I it, the, the, the philosophy is, I'm just here to entertain you. And if I'm reminding you of the situation, like, I'm only going to talk about the president to make fun of him. I'm only going to talk about, uh, you know, anything that's happening right now um, in order to, like superficially make fun of it yes because uh going deep into it might uh might make my audience divide themselves between those who agree with me and those who don't um and and i mean i mean that's that's a completely valid uh way to do comedy um but it's not stand-up no it doesn't take you in the direction of stand-up which is my point like that we were very very far off the mark for a very long time because for many reasons, one of them being, you know, people had already, because of all these historical uh, baggage, they're already considering comedy an escape mm-hmm. from the cruel things in life. There was also a massive, was, still is, but less, considerably less, uh, censorship from the state as yes. well. So comedy was in a very safe so well, that's the other thing. Uh, we had uh, basically a duopoly of media. We have, we had basically a monopoly with Televisa. The internet has kind of changed it's it. It's yeah. changed it. Uh, it's changed it a lot, actually. Yeah. But but basically, uh, if your discourse was not allowed by the two main TV stations, both of which had a very similar idea of what comedy should be and uh, well, comedy should be, uh, you wouldn't go on stage. I mean... Uh, go on screen. I'm sorry. You wouldn't get any exposure. Exactly. Screen, yeah. uh, I think that even that even with his like as much as you could say that Eugenio Derbez was quote unquote apolitical, he did use his uh, forum to say a few things. Yeah. Um, he because in the end, you know, wanting to entertain means wanting to have you know wanting people to be happy. And wanting people to be happy is something a lot of people don't want apparently. Uh, <laughs> But um, but that brings us, I think, to how did you get into the stand comedy scene? <laughs> um, I w- <laughs> my therapist told me to do it. Like it was that I was I was in the middle of a you know I was one of my therapists. Um, he was um, the, the nicer one, the non psychiatric one, the one that doesn't give me the medication, but he talks about my feelings. And, uh, the other the other one is great as well. But uh, this guy 
I was in the middle of, you know, I was in the middle of a very dark, depressive kind of thing. I was in medication for depression. I was taking medication for depression and anxiety. And he said, you know, we, we started doing a lot of searching and so on. I was like, okay, and when you, and because I, my major was um, drama and then I went into education and I became a teacher. I'm very, very happy, still very happy as a teacher. Um, but he was, you know, we were doing the whole soul searching thing and he was like, okay, and why did you study drama? And I said, because I, want, I wanted to be a playwright. I wanted to write for the stage. And he was like, okay, can you do that now? Let's try it. Let's give it a try. And I was like, I, I don't know how, because you need all the contacts and all the things and so on. And the logical thing seemed, okay, if I can take a stand-up course, I can at least learn to write for myself. Yes. And write. And I only need me. And that is, that was... That to to this day, I think that is so wonderful about stand up. It's just you and the thing you've written, and that's it. At its bare bones, that's all that stand up is. Um, so I started taking the course. I had absolutely no intention of continuing with stand up. I just took the course as kind of an occupational therapy thing. Turns out I was an okay comic. And uh, I just finished the course and some people saw me. I remember that one of my graduations, this uh, very renowned stand-up teacher called Gus Proal, uh, his girlfriend, I believe he was his girlfriend, or maybe we should edit this out. Someone <laughs> someone, she, someone he knew was uh, at, yeah. the, at the show and he saw me and he said, you're actually very good. Would you like to come to this show? And just people started calling me to their shows and I started just... Kind of like, I still have a bit of an imposter syndrome because I, I don't feel like I've earned it. I just, it never goes away. I know, I know, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very strange because still being very new, I still have a hard time introducing myself. Like, what do you do? I always go for teacher, even though I now dedicate mostly... And also it's, e it's, you know, it's better when people don't instantly go and like, oh, tell us a joke. Yeah, exactly. Which is totally true, and I hate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you came into the stand-up comedy scene, uh, you came in like two years ago? A uh, like year and two months. year and two months ago. three months. Um, when you started, for example, when you started your course, people, did they ask you, why are you here? Uh, what were the responses? Or why are, like, were people being like, oh, I want to be fam a famous comedian or... Um, I don't think I heard anyone actually say I want to be famous, although you could see that a lot of people were going for that. Like, mm -hmm. they, they wanted the attention. They, they really wanted the attention, which is all fine, by the way. I'm not saying that wanting, everybody wants attention in one way or another. Maybe your way of wanting attention is going on stage and having people clap at you. And maybe your way of wanting attention is getting a good mark in an exam. Yes. Like, everyone wants the recognition. Uh, but some of them were clearly going for that. And uh, when I was asked, because everyone's like, oh, you know, we did the circle thing, and why are you here? Why are you here? Give my, us your name. I was in this course by, who is, in my opinion, the most accomplished stand-up teacher, instructor in Mexico, who is Gloria Rodriguez. Amazing teacher. Taught me so many things. Amazing. Um, and she was going around, and she asked, okay, what do you want? Why do you want to do stand-up? And I just answered, honestly, I want to write. I just want to be a writer. And I, I feel that this might be a way of going back into writing, you know, and, and that was just my response. I, I, and from the beginning, we, we, we clicked very much because each teacher has their focus and Gloria Rodriguez's focus is very much the writing. Yeah. For writing, for Gloria, the, the, the writing is king. Yeah. Which is my main uh, break from her. No, her course is literally, she's not lying to anyone. Her course is literally called... Stand-up script writing. Yes. Like, it's, she's not doing, like, acting or delivery or... Uh, oh, so she physical. does have a delivery course, which yes. is really good. Yes, but she doesn't, like... That's not her 
introductory course. Yes. Her courses, her main courses are writing. She's a, she's a writer. And so um, that was what I wanted to do. And it was very interesting to go into the scene. Uh, first of all, I found a scene very different from the one you found. And I think this is yes. a very nice contrast. <laughs> uh, I found a scene full of comedians. Everybody wants to be on stage. Everybody is, it's highly competitive. I wouldn't say cutthroat, or maybe that's just been my experience, or maybe I just try not to focus on that. But I haven't found anyone who's actually actively undermining someone else. There is at least, I've had the good fortune maybe, of being surrounded by people who have this sense of honor amongst thieves, the idea that if I can help you, then maybe eventually you can help me. So why wouldn't we help each other? And that's kind of the scene I went into, although it was very difficult. Like when I started going into the open mics, for example, you already had the crowd and there was the crowd of the established ones. And there was Martin and there was Adriana Chavez and there was, you know, the, the people who everyone knew because, you know, and, and Carlos Vallarta. And, and, here in, yeah. and here and everywhere, comics in the audience are like the worst part of the audience. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, which is why I don't see comedy. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have the established uh, ones who were always in, uh, in the VIP list in, at the open mic, and then there were the cr- there was the crowd, and in the crowd of comedians trying to go on stage, there were the cool kids who were the like the upstarts, the up and comers, you know, and, yeah. the, and these people who even though they were just starting, they were they were really going for it and they were really good. You know, so you had your you had your Soline and you had you had your Patches and you had your like. These these comedians who were very everybody seemed to like them very much and they were very yeah. and they were the cool kids they were the, they were the cool crowd and they, I was just this guy who nobody knew and I just came in and I had this thing where I just got really nervous I still get really 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 nervous on stage and it shows and one time I remember that I was talking to Gus Brail, this teacher and I said you know I get really nervous and Gus Brail said don't lose that because that's part of your personality on stage your personality on stage is that. You're really uncomfortable to be here. You're here and you're going to say it, but you're not acting it. You're doing it. You're just like yeah. pushing through. And which works for a lot of people. That ne- I mean, as long as it does not become this thing where like, if you're so uncomfortable, why are you doing it? Yes. Um, I, when I started, and this is something I, of course, it's something I wanted to talk about. Otherwise, I wouldn't bring it up. Yeah. I didn't want to talk about this, but I want to bring it up anyway. This is no. a safe space, Martin. You can, you can tell us. You can tell <laughs> no, us. Um, when when I started, I had the idea that you couldn't do stand-up comedy in Spanish. Like, I'd only seen stand-up comedy in English. Right. And the only time I saw it in Spanish was literally the day I went to do a stand-up comedy in front of people. And Sofia was there, Gloria was there, Gon Curiel was there. Um, so, when you started writing stand-up comedy... Like, was that something you felt or was the language thing a barrier or anything? No, I, I didn't think so because it was like, I found, I don't know, I found that it was all about, and this is something I'm still learning, but I think it's all about honesty. Like, if you're speaking with an honest voice, and a lot of people have told me, a lot of really experienced, you've told me this, like a lot of really experienced comedians have told me this, that... The difficult thing, the most difficult thing when you're starting is to be and speak on stage as you are and speak off stage. There shouldn't be a difference. Of course, you take liberties. Of course, you do. You make a certain exaggeration. The way I say that, you're, you're, you, you on stage is an exaggerated version of yourself. That's what I, I say. But you laugh the same way and you, you, you have the same mannerisms. And I think that's something that is very good about your comedy. 
if you see yourself on so like what you see is what you get and that's and people kind of vibe that even though they don't really know you off stage they vibe that this is the way this guy is this is the way this guy talks and then you have the people who are very stiff even sometimes and I'm not going to say any names because I'm not here to be shady but <laughs> there are some comedians that the very loose and very um you know flamboyant and explosive but they do it in a very stiff way it's a very learned kind of thing yes. they don't let themselves be uh, moved by their own words anymore and that's something that i think we could learn from classic drama like the idea that you have to be moved by the things you're saying not just not because you wrote it does it mean that automatically it's authentic or um i'm, I'm looking for a word like uh verosimile I don't even know how to say this in English but like I think the word in English is very, is very I know the word, word verosimilitude exists but anyway um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is um, the themes because one of my main complaints about the theme, oh yes we talked about uh, a little bit before but basically my complaint about uh, stand-up comedy in Mexico is that people think that just because they're doing a different format they're instantly doing a different comedy But in the end, they are like the same things you see on Mexican comedy, which you, I might complain about. Uh, the machismo, the homophobia, everything. It's like the same thing. It's the same jokes. They're just in a different, in a shiny new different package. Um, so when I started, I think we were all, again, we were only like 10 people when I started and we were all very distinct. We were, we all had very distinct, uh, Everything, like voices, uh, uh, you know, like way, ways of being on stage, you know. And um, my question right now is, when you came to the stand-up comedy scene, do you still see a diversity or do you see things sort of becoming monochromatic? Well, I think, in here's the thing, maybe, I think this is where, again, my drama background comes in, because... When you study the, a, a particular period, let's imagine that stand, Mexican stand-up is a period, which it is, a period in the history of literature. And you had your romantics, and you had your modernists, and you had your new realists, and you had all these different currents of, of thought and currents of, of seeing drama and, and, and the performance. In each of them, you had a lot of people who were just being pulled by this great current So you would have your realists that never really amounted to very much. But then you would have your Arthur Millers, who came in with this realism and this, uh, you know, this um, very much American pre-postmodern kind of way of looking at things. And they stood out because they were so talented and they had a way of seeing things. And the way I see stand-up right now is kind of like that. You see, of course, a lot of people who are just being dragged along and they just, they want the stand-up. Stand-up is a very seductive thing because it's just you. Whatever happens on stage, whatever triumphs you get on stage, it really isn't up to the lights guy. I mean, I don't want to say that the lights people are not doing a very important job, but it's not nowhere near as important as it is in an opera or a play. Mm. Music, same thing. Uh, sound, okay, just get a mic working properly. Not that difficult. I've worked in sound tech. It's not that difficult, depending on the space, but still. Um, so it's a very seductive thing to... to to triumph on stage and to just like, as we say here in Mexico, reventarla, basically to mm -hmm. bring down the house because it's just you and your words. Um, and you do get a lot of people who are like, I don't know if they're copying each other. They're probably emulating each other. I'm, I'm going to say 99 times out of 100 completely uh, unconsciously. Yeah. 
But it's a trend. You do get things that repeat themselves and repeat themselves and repeat themselves. So you, when you get someone who is very genuine, people think, "Oh, this is so fresh," and it's not necessarily fresh. It's just that people are not—they're um, not trying to fit a particular style. For example, I've observed from my very, very brief time doing Mexican stand-up that Mexican stand-up right now is in this um, in this style of fast delivery, quick laugh, quick joke. No going deep into things. It's just get a quick laugh, go to the next thing. Get a quick laugh. It's a very disjointed kind of thing. But you do get the, on the upside, you get an audience that doesn't stop laughing for forty minutes. Yeah. yeah? Um, and when I started, a lot of people would they were not being mean spirited, but they were telling me your jokes are too long. This is my own personal experience. Your jokes are too long. You talk too much about this and too much about this. And I was like, I, I can't write a one liner. To save my life, I just can't. Like the other day, I wrote my first one-liner. It was terrible. I showed it to Martin. It was dreadful. Um, but I can't do it. I can't just do setup and punchline. Yeah, it's it's something that. I think it's another thing that happens here in Mexico, and it happens in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the example I'm going to pull out of my ass right now is I don't know if you've seen, but like, for example, if near your house, like a cupcake store pops up, and it has success, it's like yay, cupcake store. Like six months from from when it starts to be successful, you're going to have three cupcake stores yes. near your house. And it's like, okay, this guy worked because he was, he was doing something original that he loved. Yeah. You're just... And I think that happens in a lot of places, also in comedy. Um, and in speaking about that, the whole thing you're saying uh, of being yourself on stage, I also think that for a lot of people, stand-up comedy is the, the thing you can do on stage that requires, quote-unquote, the least amount of talent on your behalf. Do you think that that's... I think that's a pull. I mean, people are like, I don't need a guitar. I just need to grab my, the microphone and learn how to do a couple of jokes. So and people then, see it like the easy way... I think that's one of the reasons why we have so many. And not only in here, in Mexico, like in general. Like, uh, you know, um, like people will be like, okay, yeah, I could do that. Like, I can't imagine that. I mean, I, I'm going to disagree because... If there's anything I knew going into the stand-up course is this is not going to be easy. Like when I would see the stand-up comedians that I, you know, we get from the US, you know, yeah. here, like when I would see, I don't know, a Sarah Silverman doing a set, I was like, that must be so fucking difficult. How does she do it? How does she transform yeah, but that's, this but, audience? But that's the thing. Uh, people don't see the work behind everything Sarah Silverman does, actually. Uh, I mean, you and, you and I do, because we're both comedians and you are a writer. Uh, you are, you know how much work goes behind, uh, everything. And, you know, and Sasserman does, you know, play with the lights and, you know, sh her shows aren't just, um, not that, it, not that just having a microphone stage is, is easy, but, she um, does incorporate several elements. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, they, like, they see, Uh, Patton Oswald, they see Pete Holmes and they don't see everything that went into writing that. They think, oh, so it's just me grabbing a microphone and saying what I think. Until they go into their first open mic. Until they go into the first oh, open God, mic. This is hard. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and it's, but that means that, and a lot of people don't learn it on the first time they go on stage. Yes. They just think, oh, this time I was off. I just need to, Tweak keep it. doing it exactly yeah, I just, I'll just keep doing it until it's brilliant exactly exactly uh, without even realizing that there's like a technique several techniques um, and a craft there is a craft there's a, and the thing is and what, what I was saying is um, and I think what that's one of the reasons 
that's it's because we are kind of a young comedy scene. Uh, we haven't diverged into it's you know into this place where people just go okay you're allowed to be you know to be the guy with the long with the quote unquote long premises to be the guy with uh to be the guy that uses props to be the guy that you know also does music to be the guy that has a 15 minute c comedy set that is brilliant but actually does more writing on the side you know like um we haven't yet diverged into all of that so right now what people see is who is on netflix And what can I do to be more like them? And the thing is that with the craft of it, it's such a complicated thing because, you know, like, I don't know, learning an instrument, learning the piano, for example. I took a few piano lessons when I was younger and it was a very mechanical thing. It was just play these three notes over and over until it feels natural to your fingers and you no longer have to look at your fingers, but you can just see where the keys are and just play it and play it and play it and you get... There's a an exercise element to stretching your tendons and stretching your muscles and knowing, having the strength to hit the note with your pinky finger strong enough so that it stands out, etc. And with stand-up, I think the craft is your own. You have to learn to work with the material that you have, and the material that you have is your own. And I think you can always tell when a comedian is not doing that. They're not doing... Or they're going the easy way. Like, I know that the first thing they teach you, the first thing they taught me is make fun of yourself. Yeah. Make fun of yourself. So the the first uh, premise or the first um, setup that I was taught, and it was a very good setup for beginners, was I am so some I am so blank that blank. Yeah. So I am so gay. Stand up comedy yeah. bible by UD uh, something. Yeah, and it's I am so gay that I do this, and I am so and, and you start with your uh, flaws, your character flaws, or your character not flaws necessarily, but the things that you're you're hitting up against all yeah. the time. So it's, I'm so gay that I do this, or I'm so neurotic that I do this, or I'm so nervous all the time that I do this. And that's easy. But then it gets to a point, it happens to me, like, if you're a fat comedian, if you're a really fat comedian, and you don't have anything genuinely interesting to say about being fat, then stop. Because it's been done before, and it's probably been done better. Yes. And... I know it sounds very snobbish, but it's true. Like, you have your Gabriel Iglesias. He's done so um, so many amazing fat jokes, and he does, th does them in, with this natural delivery that, you know, how can you possibly... And then you get these people who are like, I'm just going to talk 15 minutes about how fat I am. It's like, yeah. 15 minutes is not enough. Uh, last night, we were joined... 15 like, minutes is not enough for how fat you no, are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, are you going to be eating cake while you do that? I don't know. I'm going to do a show eating cake. That's You shouldn't. Yeah. Um, have you seen, sidebar, but have you seen um, Tina Fey's skit on Saturday Night Live where she actually eats a cake? Yeah, like, where, where the, with the, when the white supremacy yes, marched. It yeah. was so good. It was so good. But um, for example, last night we were joined by this comedian uh, who is a wonderful comedian, good friend of ours, Enrique Laisequilla. And he is a very fat man. Uh, and he does address his fatness. But he knows not to dwell on it. Yes. He knows just to acknowledge the elephant in the room, as it were. <laughs> um, he acknowledges the elephant in the room, and then he goes off into other, other kinds of things. Yeah. And I like when people are clearly like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Like, from the beginning, it, you know, some people were like, you should tell more gay jokes. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to. It's just, it, it's not that I don't have anything to say about being gay. It's just that 
I, I feel like it's so much more fun for me to talk about other things and to talk, but to talk about the things that I care about. It's just, yeah, I mean, the thing is, what you, what you said was really good. Like, people get told, like, you know, use your more, most, quote-unquote, obvious flaw and, you know, go from there. And, you know, that's a good place to start. But, but um, what else is there? What happened yesterday at the dressing room, which was amazing... Yesterday at the, sh at the show, uh, uh, the host was this uh, girl called Nancy Villalo, who is a very good comedian. Uh, she is smart. She, like, from the moment she started doing comedy, I've loved her premises. Like, even if sometimes the punchlines take a while to get there, because that's the thing with a good premise, the punchline doesn't come immediately. Yeah. Uh, and yesterday, she started telling me, uh, she just told me the premise. And when she told me the premise, she she beamed, and I love that. I love because what I told her how we sometimes talk in comedy world is like you sometimes you're, you just like open a little bit of door, like you open a little door, like you just peek inside, and then you close it, and the audience is like you had, like why didn't why is this why did you close that door? There's so much there, and what she did was just break open the door, like she just like like broke the door down and right now she doesn't know where the jokes are right now she's just gonna go into that place and explore and she looked so happy and i was so happy to see her because i i know that feeling I she know writes that. on stage she does write on yeah. stage uh and and it's just so amazing to be able to have this playground especially when you when you realize i've never heard anyone Say this. I've never heard anyone look at this this way. Uh, and this might be my film background. Um, like they say in film, move, if you move the camera, you change the world. I think that a lot of what, one of my complaints about comedy everywhere in all kinds of like film, uh, you know, uh, whatever, tweets, everything. It's everyone is looking at the thing from the same place. So that everyone is getting the same joke or near the same joke. Uh, and it's not comedy theft. It's just we're all looking from the same lens. So we approach it. So we're, we all have comedic sensibilities. So we get kind of the same joke. But when you start letting yourself drift to your side, just just move a little bit to your side. And you might come up with a joke that maybe not everyone gets because it's now more, more akin to your sensibilities. But it's a joke that nobody else could have come up with. Yeah, you're letting yourself be genuine in a way that you sort of escape the shell that you started in. So, so for example, on paper, I think, I think we both are a good example of this. Because on paper, we are both kind of the same comedian. If you wrote a two-line synopsis of our comedy and our style, yeah. we're kind of the same comedian. We are both gay men, uh, relatively same age educated uh, uh we are observational very observational and it could be just that and then as we grow as a, you know you're already very much grown and still growing <laughs> but i can see that we start to drift apart in these ways that we don't clash like i don't see a problem like i would see a problem placing certain comedians in the same show especially following each other because i'd be like it's kind of more of the same thing exactly like you would like why would you even switch comedian and 
It doesn't happen with us. We could have a show. We've had shows with just the two of us. And we're both men and we're both gay and we both have the same. But it's these tiny little differences where you, for example, you, you're so good, you, you start doing physical comedy, which I've never done and I feel very, very <laughs> reluctant to do. Um, but you start doing physical comedy and you have this more of a histrionic you play different characters and you play different ridiculous situations yes. and I'm more I'm less ridiculous and more grounded in reality and seeing uh, anecdotes and I love saying like this happened to me and this happened to me and this happened to me so these things as you go into them and as you feel comfortable in your own comedic voice you see that it's not as simple as because I've had some some people say oh I wanted to call you for this show but I've already got another observational and I'm like yeah but it doesn't matter. Well, uh, booking shows is, you know, where, where, when it comes to production and agents, there are no really, there's like a couple of agencies for stand-up comedians, but there's not that many spaces yet. It's, it's growing. The one thing I have to say about uh, the stand-up comedy in Mexico is we've been very blessed to have a lot of people come from outside, like uh, Comedy Central people who came and got us on television when we had... No business being on television. Like, I recorded my first... To you guys. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. <laughs> now it's really difficult. Now it's more difficult. Uh, and still, there's people on TV that, that I'm like... that like and, and they don't realize it, like, how lucky they are that they're even allowed in a Comedy Central casting... Uh, to get into one of those. Like, the first time I went to the US, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've been coming. Like, they were like, what? What? How? Exactly. Yeah. And it's not that I'm not, uh, I mean, there's one Comedy Central show that I, I wish I could burn to the ground, but, um, but like, when you step out of this, uh, little shell of Mexican comedy and you realize how amazingly lucky we've been to have oh. been given these opportunities by all these people. Yet, you know, they're like, you know, we're all looking for content. This is the content era. You need, you need so much new content at any, at any given moment. But, uh, but the way to work with that is not to work to have a Comedy Central set, but to always be working to improve your comedy. Yes. And I say this as someone who's not sometimes always working to improve. It's comedy. You can't be doing it all the time. That's a thing as well. I've learned to be a bit easy on myself. Like, sometimes it's okay just to polish a joke. No, no, Augusto. Yes. You need to wake up and eat and drink and sleep comedy. No, I don't. I mean, Until you hate your own jokes. Tries. Until going on stage. No, it's kidding. I love no, but you, you're very right, though. Even, even I, who have started very recently, I'm still a baby. I still, like, I don't have any illusions of grandeur and fame. Like, I'm a baby at this. I'm, if, I, if I've reached 10% of my potential, that's a lot already. Um, but still, I've been very lucky. When I talked to, when I was in Chicago last year, I was talking to these comedians over there. I was like, okay, how many shows are you doing? A week, and I'm like, I'm probably doing two a week, and they're like, what? They're like, yeah, two, two shows, yeah. but like shows, like not not open mics, like actual shows. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing two. And shows. on a good time slot, like eight nine p.m., yeah. like a lot of comedians in New York 
aren't doing shows at 8, 2 9 p.m. They go on at 2 a.m. 2 a.m. There's three drunk people in the audience yeah. that they pulled inside from the, from no, the from sidewalk. Absolutely. So I've been very, very lucky. Been very lucky. And, you know, I've, I've met some amazing people who have been kind enough to teach me and kind enough to, to walk me through many things. But it's still a scene where there's a lot of potential. There is a lot of... And, and I've, I've consider, I consider myself very lucky. That said, I do think that we need to stop um, looking at Mexican stand-up in terms of... Because we're, we're very ignorant. We're a very ignorant scene, I believe. So when people tell me uh, we don't want two gay comedians on stage, which is not to say that they're being homophobic or anything, but they just they think that... I don't think so. I don't think kind so. Of. Because they'll do the same for... I don't want two people who talk about the slums of Mexico City, one right after the other. It's like, no, the problem is not that they're talking about the same thing, because if if you couldn't talk about the same thing, then there would be no comedy. Everything has been already talked about. Yes. So it's not about that. It's just, instead of looking at it from a topic perspective, look at it from a humanistic perspective. What kind of person is this? Is this person going to be a complainer? Is this person going to be a storyteller? Is this person going to be, um, I don't know, a, a, a one-liner insult, insult comic? For example, we, we have none of those. Yeah. Okay, and just to finish up, What is your favorite thing about the stand-up comedy scene in Mexico? Oh, my God. You, you first. Me first? Yeah. I do love... Even as I said before that, I do feel there is a part of it that's very monochromatic. I do love that we do have such a diversity of voices, uh, especially on places like Comedy Central. I've heard, I've heard complaints in other places that as a queer comedian, you don't get that many spaces. I don't think that's the case here in Mexico. I think people... as As much as we could have like a bias of oh people are close minded, I think I've I think audiences are very open to listen to a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives, um, and I just love that we're giving a space to so many kinds of people to just say this is my shit, and we're kind of just letting the audience do the rest. That's a, that's a very, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I think my favorite thing about the Mexican stand-up scene is, and this is something I was not expecting because I always expect people to be shit. Um, and there, surely there have to be shitty people everywhere, but at, at least my experience has been that people have been very generous with the young ones and with the, with the startups because from the moment I started doing things, people, really experienced people. I remember the first time that... Monica Escobedo saw me. She saw me on stage and she, she said, you've got something special. I want you to open a show for me. And then that led to Theo Robert and that led to you and that led to like other people and people were always, and I've literally walked up to people and said, I really like your comedy. You just saw me. Could I open a show for you one day? And they say, yes, They will say yes. Some of them will forget. I don't hold, them, hold it against them. Nobody can remember any... any and they have other 20 people They have other people. Other 20 people. But many of them have said yes, and they give you a chance. And this led me to some really amazing stages and to opening for really amazing comics that I learned things from. And that's how I ended up opening for... Uh, Patti Vaselis, who is an amazing crowd worker, probably the best crowd worker in the country right now. And then I worked with Ibrahim Salem, who is such an amazing uh, black humor comedian. And I learned that from him. So if you're willing to learn and if you're willing to say, and this is my biggest problem, you need to be humble. And I think a lot of people in the, stand in the Mexican stand-up scene are not humble enough. 
You have to just, and this is maybe because I come from this academic background. You need to sometimes just just sit down, shut the fuck up. He's got a PhD and you don't. So there has to be something you can learn from this guy. There has to be. There is a pecking order for a reason. He, Martin Leon has been doing this for nine years. Sit down, shut the fuck up and listen. There is something he's doing that you don't do yet. Look at how he's doing it. And keeping your head down and being humble and being polite. And people will respond with a lot of um, generosity. Yes. But this also brings me to my least favorite thing, which is a lot of people have very high opinions of themselves. And they will even try to kind of like... I'm not going to name any names, but I've had people say, like, how does it feel... To me, I'm nobody, literally nobody. And they come up to me and say, how does it feel now that... You, you know, you never call me now that you're famous. And I'm like, I'm, what? Like, I'm not famous. I'm famous when I get that door made. When I get that door made with it... With but, them. like, again, even if... You know, fame is such a weird thing. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I do... As I say, on, as I've said on stage, I only want to be famous enough for people to use gifts of my face as reactions on Twitter. You know, that's that's my top line. I don't want to be famous at all. That's the thing. I don't want to be famous. I'm, I'm not, not, I don't want it. Like, if, if yeah. it happens, then I guess I'll have to deal with it. And hopefully it will come with money so I can pay for another therapist to help me deal with it. Because, I, because I'm sure it's going to open a can of worms if I ever become famous. You're going you're gonna to be one of those people that just get lost in fame. Like, just... Drugs. Goodbye, Luis Augusto. I don't know. I, I, you're I, gonna go like you're gonna still have your teacher position. You're just gonna be like, yeah. You're just gonna go like go in, you know, dressed in like Prada. Let's just let's just wait for me to become famous first, and then we'll do. And with then it. we'll see. Anyways, we'll see. so um, uh, just to close up, I think my least favorite thing about the comedy scene in Mexico is I don't know. I just I, right now. To be honest, I mean, the, the thing where I just love doing stand-up. I love having the opportunity to do stand-up. I think my least favorite thing about the stand-up comedy scene in Mexico is that it's not big enough for... It's never going to be big enough for everyone. There's always going to be more people coming in. But I just want it to be bigger. That's what I want. So um, so my least favorite thing, favorite thing is that it's still quite small. So people, uh, thank you for joining us in this episode of Mexicans. Oh, we have a teaser. Oh, yeah. Before anything else, we have a teaser. This is something new. Uh, but we are going to do an upcoming episode. It's probably going to be the next one or the, the one after that. We're going to be focusing on... We want to we want to do a show about telenovelas. We do. The problem is there is a minor snag. Just We tiny. don't really... We've never really watched telenovelas. We've never really watched them. We are... Uh, we, we observe the, the significance and we observe the importance, but we haven't really We've seen, seen the people going, oh my God, telenovela, but no. So as a challenge, we are going to ask the other, Martin is going to ask me and I'm going to ask him, to watch one or two episodes of a famous, iconic Mexican telenovela. We're going to watch them, this is going to be our homework, and then we're, we're going to comment on this. And then we'll feel, well... Probably not qualified at all. We're going to be able to have more to talk about. More and not just like one hour. Um, yeah. That's good. Do you know what the novela you're going to ask me to watch? Oh my God. I wanted to do one of the Maris. Uh, so let's go with Marimar. I'm going to watch Marimar? Yes. All right. You are going to watch um, Perfume de Mujer. Perfume de Mujer. Which was the one telenovela I remember my parents watching. And apparently... People say it was one of the higher quality okay. telenovelas made. That was not at all my thing for choosing your telenovela. No, you chose it. Well, you went for the tacky. Well, Mar yeah, I mean, Talia. Because the three Maris are Marimar, Mariela del Barrio, and... Marimar, Mariela del Barrio. 
forget the third one. Maria Mercedes. Maria Mercedes. Uh, Maybe I so can So it's basically, a, basically three Cinderella stories. Why don't I give you... Right, then scratch that. I'm going to give you Dos Mujeres Un Camino. Dos Mujeres Un Camino. That's going to be my trashy novella. Yes, it was... And your... Uh, your what's going to be your... your I forget the name of this, this novella, TV Azteca. It wasn't Perfume de Mujeres, but something... Something de Lobos. Cuna de Lobos. Cuna de Lobos. Cuna de Lobos. All right, I will watch that. Okay. So, so that's the challenge issued. Thank you for sitting down with us for breakfast. It was lovely. It was lovely. Yeah, it was so good.